Okay, I'm going to I'm going to do a talk now, a lecture, and there's going to be a lot of information. I'm going to talk fairly fast because I want to cover a lot of territory, but I want to do a big flyover. And the to- topic of title of this is the earthly triumph of Christ's kingdom. Before I get there, Daniel mentioned and reminded me, and I've preached on this before, but a good thing to remember about Pentecost being that point at which God's bringing the nations into His kingdom. Pentecost is the anti-Babel. At the Tower of Babel, as men were trying to be their own God uh, and create their own system and own world, God destroyed that in judgment and confused the languages. What happened on the day of Pentecost? People from all over the world were gathered there for Passover, and what did they hear? They heard the gospel in their own language. So at Pentecost, these nations that have been divided and deceived are now going to, this is the beginning of the gospel going to every tongue, every tribe, every nation. So uh, those are important connections to make. I want to start with a quote from R.J. Rushdoony. He said, post-millennialism believes that man must be saved and that his regeneration is the starting point for a mandate to exercise dominion in Christ's name over every area of life and thought. Postmillennialism is, in its classic form, does not neglect the church and does not neglect also the work uh, for a Christian state and school. For the sovereignty and crown rights of the king over individuals, families, institutions, arts, sciences, and all things are, are over all things else. <clears throat> More, it holds that God has provided the way for this conquest. His law, every word that God speaks is law. It's binding on man. Grace, love, and law are only contraries in a pagan view. In God, they serve a common purpose to further his kingdom and glory. If we hold that the world can only get worse or that we will soon be raptured out of it, what impetus is left for applying the word of God to the problems of this world? The result is an, an, an inevitable one. Premillennial and amillennial believers who profess faith in the whole word of God number conservatively 25% of the American population. They are also the most impotent segment of American society with the least impact on American life. To turn the world-conquering word of the sovereign, omnipotent, and triune God into a symbol of impotence is not a mark of faith. It is blasphemy. Strong words. And we're not speaking against individuals here, but a system. If If we get it wrong, it has consequences. It matters. Big consequences. The Bible assures us that God will be victorious in extending his kingdom over all the earth. Now, I know this doesn't fit into the prevailing opinion in most churches today, and I think that's the key reason most churches are so ineffective. But I do think it's what the Bible teaches, and I want to show you that. I want to start with an example of this, which is found in Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 21. Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely 
become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down, I will go down now and see whether they have done, um, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So an old man and a barren old woman have been told by God that their descendants would become a great nation and a blessing to all the nations of the world. Got that picture? One old man and one old woman who are past childbearing age are told, and they are told this with Sodom and Gomorrah as the cultural background. Afterward, Abraham was tested in the sacrifice of Isaac, and we read in Genesis 11, 15-18. Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies." In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, New Testament commentary on this. By faith, Abraham obeyed God when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, now this is key, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of that same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now imagine the overwhelming faith that it takes for what God has promised he's going to do through Abraham. Your father Abraham, Jesus said in John 8:56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad in it. He said, Jesus is talking to the Jews. He said, your father Abraham saw my day. And when he did, he rejoiced and was glad in it. 2,000 years earlier. Now, how many discouraging things happened between the time God made these promises to Abraham and the time of Christ? And what was Abraham's part in all this? Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He was to command his children. Basically, it's like this. God, okay, you're going to multiply me like the sand and like the stars, and I'm going to have all these descendants, and we're going to bless the nations. How's that going to work? He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you, your part is to go home and command your household to keep the way of the Lord to do justice and righteousness, so that I can bring all these things to pass. You go do your stuff at your house, and I will take care of the rest. Think of loaves and fishes. So the book of Revelation is a revealing of the truth, not an obscuring of the truth. In this book, the Lord Jesus 
as he promised in the Great Commission, is present with his church. He is glorious and sovereign. He walks among the candlesticks, which are the churches. The seven candlesticks represent the seven major churches. John had two scrolls, one a seven-sealed scroll dealing with one enemy of the people of God, which was Jerusalem. Uh, the apostate Jews who had rejected their Savior, uh, and they were going to be judged, and their city would fall. The second beast arises out of the sea, which is the Roman Empire itself. And John goes on to show, show us that it too, like Babylon of old, would be destroyed. So John was talking about his day. Again, think of this. Chapter 1, verse 1. Um, things that will soon come to pass which he says at the very beginning, verse 1 of the book of Revelation, what I'm about to tell you must soon come to pass. Uh, thing, uh, and then in, in 1-3, for the time is near. And then in chapter 22, at the very end of the book, in case we forgot what chapter 1 says, it says again, for the time is at hand. So we already mentioned Satan has been bound, bound from deceiving the nations. I just mentioned, I did have this in here, Daniel, uh, the day of Pentecost is, again, this counterpart to Babel, and Jesus sends his disciples to the uttermost parts of the earth, and we see this explosion. Uh, I'm dating myself, but there was an episode of the Three Stooges where they had had a bunch of leaven in the bread, and the bread ended up taking over the whole kitchen. uh, it got out of hand. Well, that's kind of what I imagine here with the kingdom of God. Um, but hadn't it been more than a thousand years? Yes, but the book of Revelation is full of poetic images. We already mentioned cattle on a thousand hills from Psalm 50. I think it's curious that those who say we must interpret Revelation literally don't think the language of shortly, near, and the time is at hand is literal, but they can find Huey helicopters in the same book. The summary is that the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. Jesus said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we already... Uh, so... Um, I'm going to skip over something here because for time's sake, and I may come back to this uh, to dispel a few myths about postmillennialism, but I want to uh, come back to that maybe. Um, aren't things getting worse and worse? You've been watching, you've been watching Fox News, right, or uh, CNN, or uh, isn't this the worst generation? What did Jesus? What did Jesus? Say, who did Jesus say was the worst generation? His generation. Um, which century would you rather live in? Any? Nobody wants 17th century. I like P.J. O'Rourke's statement: If you get to pining for the good old days, just say one word: dentistry. Um, so. So we tend to think, oh, things are getting worse and worse and worse, right? But I'd like to challenge that. I'd like to argue that the kingdom of God is spread. And I'm going to chase a rabbit here for a minute. And you, some of you have heard me do this recently. If you watch the news, are they reporting on what the kingdom of God is doing 
in a favorable way if they report on it at all. But is the kingdom of God, has it been at work today? Doing what? Millions of unseen things. Prayers, labors of love, raising children, teaching them God's word, spreading the gospel, ministering to people, feeding the poor. Uh, in fact, if we look at Western civilization, hospitals, schools, churches, communities, that's what the gospel has done to the world. What would the world be if you took all that out? And we haven't even touched on the scientific developments and living in a world where we understand God made it and it's orderly and it's, it's uh, consistent and we can count on it. And we could go on and on and on with this, not to mention the ethics. Yes. Um, so there are not just 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. There are millions Where are the great empires of the world? Most of them. You know that saying? The dustbin, the ash heap of history is where they are. Where is Nero? Somebody said, uh, we name our sons Paul and our dogs Nero. Um, um, So you can't see all that God is doing. God's kingdom is like leaven. The Messiah's reign has been established on earth. I've got... If you want scripture references, I can give those to you, Matthew 12, 28. He need only ask the Father, Psalm 2, and the nations will be given to him for his inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth is his possession. With that end in mind, Christ commissioned the church to make all the nations his obedient disciples. This is the God of heaven and earth. This is the creator of the universe who reigns, who sits at the right hand of the Father. Having bound Satan so that he is restrained from deceiving the nations, Christ is now despoiling Satan's house, Matthew 12, 29, and this is why the gates of hell shall not prevail against the onslaught of Christ's church. Crowned with glory and honor, Hebrews 2, 9, Christ has been enthroned at God's right hand, and what does Hebrews 10, 13 say? Henceforth... Now, when was he when was he seated at the right hand? At the ascension. Henceforth, expecting his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet. Now, to put things in context, some biblical examples: Isaiah nine six. For unto us, a, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Just like God told Abraham, you go home and do this, and I'll bring this to pass. When is the throne of David established? When is the Davidic kingdom established? And we see from Acts 2 that this was fulfilled in the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The increase of his government will never stop. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We must know that God is zealous to get this done. This isn't an afterthought. He's not wringing his hands. He's not concerned about the outcome. 
God has made a decree to his son, Psalm 2.8, Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Therefore, we expect that when the Davidic kingdom is established, and it has been in the res- and it has been in the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, that now this kingdom will grow and grow and grow. In Daniel, the second chapter, where Daniel is interpreting for King Nebuchadnezzar his dream of this idol, this image has four different sections in it. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel uh, continues in Daniel 2.44-45, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break into pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Yeah, that's Daniel 2, 44 through 45. No doubt about this, the kingdom of God is going to come, and the Roman Empire, which is the final one of these kingdoms in Daniel, uh, is going to be crushed to powder uh, by it. It will be blown away with the wind of history, and the stone will grow and grow and grow, and it will consume the earth. This is what the Old Testament leads us to expect. I mean, again, no, uh, no end to the increase of his government. Isaiah 54.2 uh, says we will have, have to lengthen the tent lines, enlarge your tent, because now the nations are going to be brought in. Ezekiel 47 says there will be an ever-deepening stream that flows from the Holy of Holies. Or as Jesus tells us in the kingdom of the parables in Matthew 13, His kingdom is like a mustard seed that begins very small, but grows to become one of the largest of bushes or trees. It would be like leaven, he said, that though it is just minuscule in its quantity in the beginning, nevertheless affects the entire lump of dough as it's baking. The kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is to grow and grow and grow, larger and larger and larger. Again, here we sit. It is to permeate all of life and all the world and all the nations will finally be consumed by it. This is what the Bible says. It's really just a question of whether we believe the Bible. What does Christ expect to take place in history? His expectation is that all nations and all enemies will be won over to him, which is an expectation based on the Father's promise, nothing... Uh, and is that nothing more than wishful thinking? No Bible-believing Christian would say that, right? However, many would postpone the fulfillment of Christ's expectation to after his second coming, despite the realized nature of the preceding Bible passages, their clear application to the present age. Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. 
Hebrews 10, 12 through 13. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, and from that time waiting until all his enemies are made his footstool. Back to Psalm 2. Jesus expects all his enemies to be the footstool before he returns. I will declare, verse 7, Psalm 2, through verse 12. That's an amazing psalm, isn't it? Specifically mentions the Son of God. The judges of the earth want to rise up and break his bonds. They don't want Jesus, tell, God telling them what to do. That's, the psalm opens with that. And what does it say? He who sits in the heavens will laugh. He will hold them in derision. He'll have a belly laugh. You're going to do what? Have at it. I will, dec- I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So all Jesus needs to do, according to Psalm 2, is ask. You think he forgot to ask? Jehovah has decreed that the nations belong to Jesus. Um, Premillennialists postpone Christ's triumph to a future millennial age. Amillennialists postpone it to the future of new heavens and earth. And postmillennialists, as, as genuinely realized millennialists, expect Christ's subduing of his enemies to be accomplished before the second coming. And so did Paul. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 21-26. For since by man came death... By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam, in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, that's Christ's resurrection. Afterward, those who are, who are Christ at his coming, that's our resurrection. Then comes the end. Then he delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he, that is Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy is what? Death. So that means all the other enemies have to become his footstool before the resurrection, before he finalizes killing death. Um, So Jesus is now reigning. He will subdue all his enemies. Then he will return. Then comes the resurrection and the final defeat of death. Psalm 22, 27, 28, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. This must take place before the consummation of the world uh, and before he returns. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. Many people shall come and say, Come, 
Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word for the Lord and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So the confidence of the prophets was that all the nations would flow into the church and be nurtured by God's word and live by his just standards and learn peace. In his days, shall, uh, Psalm 72, in his days the righteous flourish in abundance of peace until the moon shall be no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth and his enemies shall lick the dust. All nations shall serve him. Isaiah 11:9 for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Jehovah as the waters cover the sea. Um, all right, I want to do something else to wrap up here. That's just a quick, there's lots more can be done here. That is you know, a flyover of, I think, what the Bible says about the victorious nature, nature of this. But I want to talk about why eschatology is so important then in terms of application. Ideas have consequences. Everything we believe has a consequence. And that's no less true in eschatology. Uh, it matters what we believe about the future. And we all believe something about the future. What we believe about the future drives us uh, in the present. If you thought it was going to pour down rain tomorrow, you probably wouldn't plant your grass seed on a hill today. Is that right, Lee? Okay. Um, If you thought the world was going to end in your lifetime, you wouldn't be so concerned about the third and fourth generations of your descendants. I'd like to suggest that the current popular thought in eschatology is a major reason for why the church is so ineffective in our culture. How many people would buy a book predicting the return of Christ 500 years from now? Andrew would, so that's one. That's because he pretty much buys any book. Um, But thanks to the fallacy of chronological snobbery, people are eager to snatch up books that promise the end of history in our lifetime. As a result, the modern evangelical church has been paralyzed in its eschatological obsessions as it constantly predicts and then revises its predictions concerning the second coming of Christ. I want to give you a few examples. Waiting for the secret rapture and the coming as a thief in the night, many Christians have assumed there's little time for long-term kingdom plans. And so popular leaders in the church have hyped their sensational claims about the future, often enriching themselves and leaving the church impoverished. Careless, sometimes dishonest exegesis of the text of Scripture has led to serious theological errors and misrepresentations of the message of Jesus. And so, acting contrary to the words of our Savior, which he said, for you do not know the day or the hour, many Christians have brought embarrassment upon the cause of his kingdom. God's people have been repeatedly scandalized by date-setters throughout church history, And there have been dozens in our own generation. I brought this. I'm proud of this. 
This is Hal Lindsey's late great Planet Earth, printed in 1970. I became committed to Christ in 1972, and this was the first book I read. Top of it says over a million copies in print in 1970. So, tell you what he said. I thought it was the greatest book on eschatology I'd ever read. It's because it's the only book on eschatology I had ever read. <laughs> Uh, it went on to sell at least 28 million copies. He predicted that Christ would return within 48 years, a generation of the establishment of the nation of Israel, which occurred in 1948. Heading an Arab-African alliance, Egypt was supposed to attack Israel with the Soviet Union subsequently entering the fray. His predictions caused enough hoopla, even Time magazine covered it. Uh, Lindsay later wrote, quote, unmistakably... This generation is the one that will see the end of the present world and the return of Christ. He wrote that in 1980 in another, a sequel uh, called Countdown to Armageddon. In 1981, Bill Maupin, leader of the Lighthouse Gospel Tract Foundation, uh, declared that, quote, there isn't any chance that the rapture would not take place on June 28th of that year. His followers quit their jobs and gave away their cars Six weeks later, he had revised his calculations and his followers again gathered at his house, waiting to be lifted off the face of the earth, uh, but his was a small flock. Not so for Chuck Smith, founder of Calvary Chapel, network of huge worship centers, first in Costa Mesa, California. In his book, Future Survival, written in 1978, he said, from my understanding of the biblical prophecies, I am convinced that the Lord is coming for his church before the end of 1981. In 1986, Charles Taylor, Anaheim, California, editor of, biblical of Bible Prophecy News, published the startling calculation about which he claimed to be 89% sure that Jesus Christ would return on September the 24th, 1987. Quote, all signs point to it, he assured readers, based on a complex formula he extrapolated from Leviticus and Daniel. Quote, the majority of Christians, according to him, knew that the rapture would take place within the next couple of years. Edgar Wiesenant, Little Rock, Arkansas, could prove it with mathematical precision. He was, after all, a rocket scientist. So he set out to demonstrate how, quote, all the 886 end-time Bible prophecies coalesced to make Rosh Hashanah of 1988 the exact date of Christ's return to rapture the saints. He published 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. Wiesenot was anything but humble. Quote, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong, and I say that unequivocally. In 1989, he published a revised version of his prediction claiming to have miscalculated by one year. Philip Morrow wrote these words just after the, after the turn of the century, 1921. Writings and addresses on prophecy always excite interest because they appeal to the element of curiosity, which is prominent in human nature. I think this kind of answers your question, Nathan, you asked earlier. Uh, but such writings and addresses are of benefit only so far as they, are, as they rightly interpret Scripture. In the case of unfulfilled prophecy, this is oftentimes a matter of difficulty, while on the other hand, 
writers on prophetic themes are under constant temptation to indulge in surmise and spe- uh, surmises and speculations, and even in flights of imagination. Much has been put forth as interpretation of prophecy which is utterly unproved, but which could not be disproved except as in cases where dates have been set for the coming of Christ, and they are disproved by the event, uh, the event itself. Despite such abuses, eschatology remains a vitally important aspect of biblical revelation. And so we should consider eschatology as the whole movement of biblical revelation rather than simply uh, some separate thing that we're studying as some kind of hobby. There, I know a lot of people that do that. It's just this is the thing that really interests them. Uh, you'll hear prophecy buffs. Um, I don't know if that means they study it while they're naked or what, but uh, in the buff. Um, um, all right, I want to do some app- last thing, application. So one thing, we, don't, we certainly don't want to inter- let the newspaper and the news uh, interpret uh, the future for us. And so I want to close here tonight with understanding history. Because here's the deal. The question is, did, has God said that he's going to be victorious? That's the first thing we have to determine. And if he has, just like what he said to Abraham, no matter how unbelievable it is, let God be found true, though every man a liar. If God said it, it's a, if whatever God says about the future is as certain as the past. He's God. So we first determine what has he said, and then we get on board. We don't evaluate, oh, I don't think that, I don't see how that could happen. After all, things are getting worse and worse, right? Couldn't possibly happen. Uh, David, I always get confused. What was it? Uh, was it uh, Czechoslovakia that fell in two weeks? Ceausescu. Yeah, I thought I would never in my lifetime see the fall of communism. And here this first domino fell in two weeks. And by the way, what, what got that sparked was a reformed pastor standing up to him. He was a murderous guy. I think, if I recall, he and his wife were killed very shortly yeah and and the whole thing began to crumble and fall apart in two weeks so i think john MacArthur said uh, i may be misciting who said it but we've said it a lot we see god doing three things and he's doing a million or ten thousand things and so we're in our little foxhole and he's the commander-in-chief and we have to trust him and believe him so does history have a meaning? Does it have a purpose? Is there a direction to history? So we need to develop a unified philosophy of history. And so some people have had the view that history is cyclical. Others have a view that it just... Uh, uh, so let's take an evolutionary view of history. Marxists have an eschatology. Do you know that? Evolutionists? What, what do you think of when you think of somebody who believes in evolution? They believe in what? Progress, right? Where do, you, where do you think progressives come from? They're Marxists. They're evolutionists. They believe that's built into this, quote, natural system is inevitable progress. Now, it, it comes by way of conflict, and that's why they're always stirring things up and trying to, to tear things apart so they can be rebuilt better. But they have an eschatology, and that's why they're so motivated. And that's one of our chief worldview opponents right now is that Marxist worldview 
because they believe in something. They believe we're going somewhere. Now, I believe that's a totally irrational belief on their part. It's made up out of thin air in a world of chaos that came from nothing, that's molecules in motion, that's returning to nothing. How do you define progress? Progress is whatever is. There is no definition of progress. implies intelligence and a plan and a goal. Tell us. Christians believe history has a beginning, a middle, and an end. History is his story. It's God's story. And it is moving in a linear way. And understanding that as we read the Bible is critical. Sir Charles Lyell, a famous evolutionary geologist, said, for example, the present is the key to the past, but I'd like to suggest the past is the key to the future. So when we read the story of Abraham and we see him say he's going to do something and then he does it, that's how we understand history. And we read every story of the Bible that way. We read Joseph's story that way. And we see how men intended it for evil, but God intended it for good in order to preserve all these people alive. We see it over and over and over and over. The evolutionary view of history requires us to assume that the present, the current, and the modern is necessarily superior to the past. This view assumes that we are moving away from the primitive, the old-fashioned, the outdated ways of yesterday and forging new frontiers into a glorious future where men can be women and women can be men and whatever you want to be. You can be your own God. Though it has no real notion of where it's headed, the model has little respect for history and views itself as always superior to what has gone before. The biblical view of history is radically different. It sets before us a superior beginning for man, born in paradise, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. Sin interrupted and corrupted this mature order and sent it headlong into decline. And ever since, history has been unfolding, the unfolding of God's plan to redeem his fallen creatures and their fallen world. And I'm going to wrap up and just say, um, in this you know, sometimes, again, another area we hadn't talked about is uh, heaven, hell, and, and the new heavens and the new earth. We're not going to be floating on clouds, men, playing with little harps uh, with wings uh, for eternity. Hallelujah. In disembodied spirits. That's not heaven. It's a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Your body is going to be resurrected. You will live forever in Christ, uncorrupted. And can you, so I just want to take a moment and close with this, because I think the Bible tells us so much. We, we should speculate about his victory, speculate about how he's going to do these things. We'll get it wrong. But he, want, he tells us enough to know it's going to happen. So imagine the new heavens and the new earth. Imagine a creation that's unaffected by the fall liberated. The creation groans right now for liberation, but it'll be liberated. What's that tree, that glorious oak tree, the best oak tree you ever saw, what's it going to look like in that world? And more importantly, what are you going to look like in that world? A sinless you. 
You can do what you want to all day long and never sin. Never. Ever. And same with your neighbors. So speculate about that. Not in a narcissistic kind of, oh, you know, what kind of pleasures. There will be pleasures forever. But we're going to have a different perspective on those. God is redeeming the world. He's buying it back. That's what the blood of Jesus did. And we should go out now and tell the world about this because the world needs this very badly. They need this news. They need hope. They need the forgiveness of sin so they can live forever, so they can experience what has been promised. So we can be continue to be a blessing to the nations. Questions or comments? I just jumped all over the place, but uh, hopefully the scatter shot there. Yes, sir. There's a famous saying by, uh, <clears throat> I think it was Vernon McGee, uh, why, why polish brass on a sinking ship? So if, if it's all going to hell in a handbasket, if Satan's in charge, in fact, that's another Hal Lindsey book, Satan's alive and well on planet Earth. Very contrary view, right? So if he's alive and well, we're just waiting for what? To get out of Dodge. Hopefully he'll be back soon, maybe tomorrow, and we won't have to put up with this anymore. We don't have time to build churches or schools or raise families or uh, do all that because the, the, the ship's going down. And it's doomed. It, 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 according to that view, it, it must go down because the devil's in charge. And Jesus is in heaven waiting for us to get there or to come get us and bring us there, get us to snatch us out of this. So you see how that radically affects your view of your calling, your work, your ministry, your family, your wife, your children, your labor. So ideas have consequences. And again, yes, sir, Drew. Yep. I know lots of people who either haven't had children or uh, limited that because uh, you don't want to bring a child into this world. That's, is it scary? Sure. But I want to remind you, when you hear the scary stuff, first of all, I was talking to my dad the other day, who's 90, and uh, and you've heard this kind of thing before, but, you know, when he grew up, he didn't have TV, a little bit of radio, Mostly, he said, you know, when we were kids, we, we'd ride our bicycles all over, almost all over town uh, all day long. You go on, nobody was worried about somebody snatching us or whatever. Um, and why? Because it's just whatever happened locally. Neighbors trusted each other and uh, that kind of thing. Um, kept an eye on each other's kids. And, uh, but now, because of technology, we hear about every shooting in every city in the country, every event across the world. We're, con- we're not built for that, men. God didn't make us to carry the weight of the world. And when we watch all that stuff and listen to it all the time, of course we get down and out. 
But God's in, in, still in, on his throne. He's still in control. What did, what did Luther say in the mighty fortress? What did he say about Satan? One little word shall fell him. It's a big axe on a tree. And though this kingdom with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Amen. Roy, you have a song for us to sing? All right.